Himalayas Studios. Most people have never heard of Malibu's most infamous billionaire. Her story's been lost over time, but her legacy is everywhere. You just have to know what to look for. For example, in the late 80s, a couple of beachgoers in Point Doom stumbled across something very strange. Sticking out of the sand, it looked a lot like a rusted ladder. What the low tides revealed that day were the last remnants of her vain attempt to hold on to what was once all hers, Malibu. Those were pieces of a railroad she built in order to keep others out of her personal kingdom. It went nowhere and was used by no one. The first time I came to Point Doom, I visited Drew Jacobson and her trailer park. Hello, how's it going? I'm going to Jacobson. Can I get your name, please? Adriana. There's a little guard stand at the entrance. I have not. Okay, so you're gonna make uh, a left at the second stop sign? Okay. There are about 300 trailers here, and Drew's is at the end of a cul-de-sac. White rose bushes, a bunch of succulents, American flag, lots of American flags. Her door is propped open with a rock, and she's got a little seashell wind chime out front. Hello, how's it going? Hey. Hey. Hey, <laughs> come in. This is so cute. It's so beachy. Oh, well, that's kind of us. Yes, very much us. We sit and chat for a bit. Then we get in her car and she shows me around the point. And while we were driving, the name May Ringe kept coming up. She's the woman who built the railroad to nowhere. Malibu to Santa Monica down to the Palos Verdes Peninsula. See, that they call it the Queen's Necklace, the whole coastline. And Why do they call it that? May Ringe was like the Queen of Malibu, and it's like, it's just... And she explained, each grouping of city lights going down the coast was like a glittering gem on the Queen's Necklace. Malibu, as we know it today, would not be what it is without May Ringe. This is Sandcastles, a podcast about home, how we create it, and why we fight so hard for it. I'm your host, Adriana Cargill. In this season, we follow the Point Doom Bombers, a group of surfers who either stayed in Malibu during the Woolsey Fire or raced back to defend it. This is episode two. This kingdom is mine. To understand why they did what they did and why they'd risk their lives for this place, you have to understand a bit more about where they came from and how it shaped them. If you haven't listened to episode one, please go take a listen. This episode will make a lot more sense if you do. And as a reminder, there is explicit language in this episode. Those rusty tracks in the sand are not the only traces of May Ringe that can still be found in Malibu today. 
But to be able to spot them, we got to go back, way back in time, like 1892 back. Eighteen ninety-two was the year Frederick and May Ringe bought Rancho Malibu. Frederick was like the Rockefeller of early Los Angeles, a prominent businessman and one of the city's wealthiest citizens. He and his wife, May, wanted a country escape, so they bought Malibu. All of it. That's right, one couple owned all of Malibu, their own personal kingdom. Around 21 miles of coastline and inland, right up to the foothills of the Santa Monica Mountains. To put that into perspective, Rancho Malibu was about the size of present-day Manhattan. It was, and still is, unceded Shumash land. The Spanish crown gave it to José Bartolomé Tapia as a land grant around the turn of the 19th century. It changed hands a few times before the Ringes bought it, but... At the time of its creation, it was one of the largest parcels ever granted. One of the reasons why it was so large was also was the most treacherous. You know, it's not a place that's suitable for farming. It's not a place that's suitable for raising cattle or sheep or anything else. What it had going for it was beauty. That was David Randall, author of the book The King and Queen of Malibu, the true story of the battle for paradise. And he's right about the beauty. It's breathtaking with orange and lavender sunsets, groups of dolphins and humpback whales swimming by, mid-70s and sunny all year round, it was, back when they bought it, and still is, pretty magical. But? It was very hard to even get there. You know, there's the constant fear of rock slides or wildfires, or there were bears and wolves and mountain lions. All these things that almost seemed like a big sign saying, you know, Get out. Do not stay here if you want to live. Not to mention mudslides and earthquakes. Even for nature lovers, Malibu in the 1800s was not a place for the timid. John Muir, who was one of the most famous naturalists who'd who'd written about Yosemite and other places, he toured through Malibu, and he said it was one of the most rugged places he's ever seen. Malibu's filled with extremely steep canyons and rocky, narrow passages. There's chaparral everywhere a very dense, brushy, bushy-type plant, along with cactuses and other prickly, thorny things. The hills are a reddish-brown, and you can smell the dry dirt and eucalyptus in the evening. And for nearly 50 years, this Old West dreamboat landscape was the domain of just one family. They had it all to themselves, and they had it all to themselves at a time when everything was booming around them. It's almost like... Central Park was just one family's property, and they were watching all the buildings come up around them saying, you know, this is still ours and we're going to keep it this way forever. But that didn't end up happening. Up in the Santa Monica Mountains, on the edges of their property, were the homesteaders. They were pioneer, rugged cowboy types living in isolation. So the homesteaders, to get to Santa Monica and to get to Los Angeles and a place where they could get provisions and supplies, they would come down through Malibu itself and then go along the beach. What happened when the Ringes moved there was they said, we don't want you to do this anymore. You know, this is our land. Uh, we want to keep it for ourselves. And this essentially made the, the homesteaders feel like that they, they were at war. Which they pretty much were. The Ringes built a bunch of gates to lock them out of Malibu. 
they also dynamited their paths onto their property. Then, a few years later, their mansion mysteriously burned down in the middle of the night. May's sheep herd was slaughtered also in the middle of the night. Although no one knows for sure if the homesteaders did it, but they certainly had reason to. Marion Decker, in particular, was a likely suspect. He was one of her fiercest opponents, a homesteader who refused to leave. His descendants still live in the area today. May's staff were shot at, and she got so many death threats, she carried a pistol. But May Ringe did not back down. She even hired armed guards on horseback with shotguns and told them, Shoot anybody on sight. We're not going to fire any warning shots here. And she really tries to turn it into her own personal kingdom. When her husband passed away in 1905, she became the sole owner of Malibu. The best years of her life she'd spent there with Frederick. And for her, keeping it pristine and protected from development equated to protecting the memories of her deceased husband. She defended Malibu with vigor. There's this famous photo of May walking with her daughter Rhoda uh, along Point Doom, and Rhoda is just armed to the hilt. You know, she has pistols on both hips. She has, you know, the line of bullets across her chest. Um, so it's this weird mix of, you know, Victorian propriety and the violence of the Old West. For the next three decades, May fought railroad companies, developers, homesteaders, even the city of Los Angeles, who all wanted in. The only way to keep railroad companies from building on her land was to build one herself. So she built a railroad to nowhere, just to keep them out. Then, L.A. City also tried to build a road through her land for public use. That fight lasted more than a decade and went all the way to the Supreme Court. In the end, May was defeated. The road, now called the Pacific Coast Highway, or PCH, was built right through her kingdom. When she died in 1941, she'd spent, in today's equivalent, around a billion dollars trying to keep Malibu all to herself. In the end, her kingdom slipped through her fingers like sand. She died with less than $800 to her name. Her descendants were forced to sell land to pay her debts. But even so, they managed to hold on to some land in Malibu, including the trailer park where Drew lives. Malibu as we know of it today wouldn't exist without May Renge. Think about it. From 1890 to 1941, she allowed almost no one to live in Malibu. The Industrial Revolution happened. America's cities boomed. The car was invented. Two world wars were started. And America became a world power. But Malibu? Malibu remained largely a time capsule of the Old West. Angelinos were scarcely aware of its existence on the other side of the mountains. May Ringe has a, has a very strong legacy in Malibu, in both in terms of how it looks now and, and the mindset. So it was this idea that 
let's keep the rest of the world out of Malibu as long as we can. And it seems like that's the constant refrain. As soon as somebody moves there, they want to make sure nobody else can after them. And lots of people did move there. Within a few years, the Ringe Holdings were just a fraction of what they once were. There was really nobody out here. This was, this was dead mansville out here. That's Kirby Kotler. His parents bought a home in Point Doom in the 1950s. Everyone rode horses. Matter of fact, the Point Doom market, which you've probably been to, uh, when I was a kid, there was more hitching posts for horses than there were stalls for cars. Tim Bigelow moved to the neighborhood in the early 60s when he was just a little kid. Growing up, he often rode horses too. When someone didn't have one? He'd just go up the street and borrow one from the neighbors or somebody. They'd say, great, go ahead, borrow the horse. And you just go down to the tack room and grab the bridle and throw it on. We didn't use saddles. And you'd ride down to the beach. Back in those days, the community was really small. Kirby again. Everyone knew each other. You may not have been best friends, but you always waved to somebody and you always got to wave back. We left Tim in the last episode, fighting to save this very home from the Woolsey fire with Sam McGee. His family house was a small one-story ranch-style home. Tim again. You know, we had seven people in a little 1,400-square-foot house. House didn't matter. The thing is, it didn't matter because we're outdoors every day. Back in those early days, there were no houses around his. He could walk through fields, trails, and empty lots from one side of the point to the other. Many houses didn't even have fences. And even for those that did, farm animals would frequently get loose. And when I was like eight, nine years old, Santa Ana's would blow out here and the fence would come loose, you know, his latch would come loose and the bull would come down to our house. His mom would tell him to bring it to the neighbors before school. And you would take the like hey, and he'd just walk with you, and you walk him, and you throw it into the corral, and he'd go in, and you lock it up. I'd be barefooted in trunks, and just walking across the field, and uh, you know that was Point Doom. Point Doom was a very blue-collar place in those days. A lot of people moved out there to live off the land. There weren't a lot of restaurants, no movie theater, or ice cream parlors. We had to entertain ourselves, and the entertainment, the uh, beach life. It was our beach, it was our place, that was our playground. That was our happening, that was everything. The golden age of Point Doom. Life revolved around the beach. It was their town square, it's where you saw people, where you did everything. And surfing was the thing to do in Point Doom. Back in those days, we would race down the beach and surf before school. That was Kirby Kotler. After school, they'd hit the beach again. I was there every chance I could get. And when there weren't waves, Tim here. You'd go lobster hunting or abalone hunting or whatever, free diving and spear fishing. Sometimes if you had enough, we'd bring it to the beach and sometimes we'd clean it there. You'd take it home, clean it and bring it back later and we'd you know, have a little bonfire and cook it on the beach. Sometimes, if a lot of time passed and there were no waves, they'd resort to desperate measures. And there'd be no waves for a week. And we'd be going, why aren't there any waves? All right, we'll burn a board. That'll, that'll get to the gods, and the gods will give us waves. You know, it was, you know, 
you, you don't 100% believe it, but it's fun. Back in the 60s, California was famous for alternative lifestyles. Think cults, gay liberation movement, Black Panthers, hippies, the summer of love. So it should come as no surprise that Malibu had some of that too. There was this guy named Marcus Broyles who lived in a makeshift shack made of found objects and palm fronds on the beach just to the north of Point Doom. Morgan Runyon, who we left in the last episode getting ready to defend his family restaurant from the Woolsey fire, looked up to Marcus as a little kid. He saw him as a bit of a hero. I'd go there all, you know, every day after school. I'd help him work on stuff and you know, I wore my little abalone dolphin that he carved me. And he was also building a boat. And it was a trimaran. And he was going to surf the waves across the ocean and ride all the reefs of the South Pacific. And as an eight-year-old hearing this, you're just like, wow, that's cool. Even in the early days of peace and love hippiedom in Malibu, Marcus exuded the type of localism Malibu and Point Doom in particular, would become known for. Morgan remembers one night as a kid, when he was down at the beach with Marcus, and there was a group of strangers, outsiders. Morgan tells the story from Marcus's point of view. As a note, Mark is short for Marcus. I was concerned about you kids being on the beach with these guys, you know, and I walked up and I introduced myself and they're all pretty high like hanging out, drinking wine, but high on other stuff, like half naked. And uh, I was like, this isn't cool, you know? And the one guy, this little short guy, dark hair, was like, hey, man, it's totally cool, man. And, and you know, I was trying to talk to him, and then he tried to pass one of the girls off on him. Like, hey, man, why don't you? And Mark went into his righteous mode, and like, I'll fight all of you, you need to leave right now, and, and ran them off the beach, and it was actually Charlie Manson and his group. Let that sink in for a second. This man, living in a shack, was so protective of his beach and the local kids that he scared off one of America's most notorious cult leaders and serial killers. Now, as you can imagine, I wasn't there on that night in Malibu in the 60s. I can't confirm whether this story is true or not. And in this next bit, there'll be a lot of stories like this one, which weren't recorded in any official way. There's no documentation, and really, there's no way to verify if they happened or not. I can't tell you if they actually burned their boards as sacrifices to the wave gods. But... There is some evidence that points in the direction of truth. With Marcus, for example, I did see a photo of what is supposed to be him and his shack on the beach. A few people I interviewed talked about him. Apparently, he was in town recently and is still alive. But some of these stories were told to me by so many different people, it almost doesn't matter if they're true or not. Because it's what the people of Point Doom believe to be true, believe to be their history. Their local lore, whether fact or fiction, is part of them. But let's start with some facts. 
In Hawaii, indigenous folks practiced the art of wave riding for thousands of years. Hawaiian Duke Kanamuku is largely credited with bringing it to the mainland U.S. He likely surfed in Southern California for the first time in 1913. But it remained a niche sport, with very few people surfing in California until 1959, and even fewer women. But Drew Jacobson's mother was one of them. She served First Point Malibu in San Onofre and all up and down the coast in the late 40s. So that's where we got our, our bug was instilled a long time ago. <laughs> First Point Malibu is the cultural mecca of surfing on the mainland U.S. It's about eight miles to the east of Point Doom, just down the PCH. She was there before Gidget. She remembers when Gidget came as a little girl, as a young girl. And she was in college or something. Gidget was like 15. It was Gidget who turned surfing into a world phenomenon. Gidget, the, mo the movie was the first time that Americans were seeing surfing. I think more importantly, what it meant to be on the beach with guys and trunks and girls in bikinis. That's Matt Warsaw, the longtime editor of Surfer Magazine, which was probably the most important publication in the surfing world. And he's also the author of the Encyclopedia of Surfing and literally wrote the book, The History of Surfing. Gidget was a real girl who learned how to surf at Malibu First Point, and her father, who was a screenwriter, wrote a book about it, released in 1957. In 59, the movie came out, and American teenagers went batshit crazy for surfing. You'll get to meet them all when you see Columbia Pictures' Gidget, brought to the screen from the bestseller that proves a teenager can be delightfully juvenile without being delinquent was close enough to basically invite everyone who saw it, everyone in America, everyone who was young and inclined to want to try something new, to go to the beach and try it. This is a kid I was telling you about. He's only been surfing a little over a month. Really? Surfing exploded in popularity following the movie, and they all wanted to surf Malibu. Before Matt was an author, he was one of those kids. He grew up in Venice in the 1970s, and he often surfed First Point. This beach is huge, with deliciously long rolling waves up here with restaurants, and it's right along the highway. It's hard to miss. But Point Doom? Point Doom was its own world, and uh, you have to work to even get a look at it. It's really tucked away. It almost feels like some kind of secret thing. I feel like we all thought it was private, and it may not have been, but it was access was hard enough that... You just sort of didn't bother. The ocean up to the high tide line in California is public land. But access to most of Point Doom beaches was through private land. So while these beaches were technically for everybody's use, most of the access points had gates. And only the locals had the keys. Even though it was difficult to get to, it had one huge advantage over First Point, which... Matt refers to here as Malibu. Malibu was the first place given the title of the perfect wave. And Malibu was also the first place that was considered to be ruined by crowds. Okay, what's he talking about the perfect wave? A quick note here for non-surfers listening. It's important to know that not every beach has rideable waves. And even at good spots, not every wave is rideable. 
surfers look for specific types of waves created by the land, swell direction, and ocean topography. On top of that, daily winds and tides can make or break a wave's rideability. Good waves are often scarce, and that scarcity often leads to conflict. Growing up in Point Doom, Kirby Kotler saw a lot of it over the decades. It was because everyone wanted to surf Point Doom was the best place. And we just kind of put a wall up and just said, unless you were a friend or a close neighbor, you weren't coming in. Tim Bigelow, who moved to Point Doom in the 60s, went to high school in Santa Monica and was on the surf team there. The Santa Monica kids would say, Oh, well, now we're all on a team together. We can come surf there. And I said, no, you can't. It was closed. Closed to any outsiders. Surfer and author Matt Warsaw again. Especially in the 70s when everything was just a, uh, a matter of, of habit, that if there was a good wave that you, that you knew about or that, that you lived at, you didn't tell anybody. It was a blood oath you took with you know, all of your friends. Don't tell anybody about this place. Malibu's first point beach had already been overrun by surfers who'd caught the Gidget craze. But Point Doom was the opposite. Although just a few miles away, it remained hidden in the shadows from mainstream surf culture. Don't tell anybody. You know, let's keep this for ourselves. And it worked. We didn't go there. But other people did try and go. Kirby Kotler dealt with a lot of it growing up there. So people from the valley would come and they'd torch the gate. They'd hook up chains to the fence and the locking mechanism for the gate. And they would hook up to a truck and take off with it in the middle of the night. I know because we were the house. That beach gate was on our property. So we woke up all hours of the night, people breaking in, cutting the locks right off. It was a crazy time back then. The locals didn't take kindly to this. In their view, the only way to preserve the beach was to keep others out. A sentiment with shades of May Ringe. Our localism kept Point Doom pristine. For example, locals who skin dive for halibut knew when to shoot a fish and when not to shoot a fish. You never shot an undersized fish, ever. Just ever. People were doing that. That's a piss off to me. That's so disrespectful. Other times, it was cleaning up the beach from their own community. Like after 4th of July fireworks. Who wants to go out surfing and get an 8-inch or 10-inch metal bar through your foot? It happened all the time. So we go out, pick up everything. We always clean the beach trail. It's about respect. As it was told to me, there weren't a lot of public services dedicated to Point Doom back then. If the locals didn't do it, no one would. Neighbors maintaining trails and policing what people fished in the ocean soon morphed into a more intense localism. Tim Bigelow again. That started with us just protecting the beach. Later on, the bombers wasn't just the beach. It was just bombing. We bombing big waves, bombing the skateboards. By bombing, he means going down a hill or a wave really fast. The marriage between loving these two things, surfing and their home turf, was the genesis of the Point Doom Bombers as a group. Tim and Kirby were both original members of the group in the 1970s. When I asked where the name came from, Kirby said it was just one day, hanging out with the guys. You start talking, all of a sudden, you know, oh, Point Doom Bombers, Point Doom Bombers, and all of a sudden, guess what? We're the Point Doom Bombers. And you're dropping in on a huge wave. 
yeah, point two bomber, you know, bombers. And boom, everyone's just like dropping these big waves. And I was always the one on the biggest wave, so I heard it a lot. For as near as I can tell, there's always been roughly 20 to 40 guys in it, in each generation. I've never heard mention of a girl or a person of color being part of it. But I didn't interview every single living original Point Doom bomber. Malibu City wasn't incorporated until 1991, and the nearest sheriff's department was on the other side of the Santa Monica Mountains. So a lot of disputes in this era were settled more street justice style, and the bombers became the main enforcement crew. During this time period, bombers took on another meaning. If anything, it was more bombers, like, boom, bomber, you know, throwing up the fist. And we were pretty strong. We did some stuff I cannot talk about in this interview. Since I work with the sheriff's department now, I can't really bring that stuff up. It was an enforcement crew. It really was more of a, just a training for the kids to learn respect. And old-timers like Kirby understood there was a pecking order, a defined hierarchy. And the older kids told you when and where you could surf. You have elders, you listen to them. You didn't just go surf out a reef when you were a kid. You surfed Gully Reef. And when they said you were good enough, they said, now you can surf middle. And if you were a lot better, you can surf semi. And then when you're old enough, you can get to point, and then you can surf out a reef. You didn't just go out there. You get your ass whooped. The Point Doom Bombers soon became known for their willingness to get violent. And we learned from all these older kids who had just come back from Vietnam. They were gnarly. All these guys were at least second or third degree black belts, minimum. They were ripped, chiseled. They killed people. They were in Vietnam. They saw action. These guys weren't like peeling potatoes. These guys were on the front line. They were, they were doing it. It was heavy duty out here. It was not, not a place for the timid. The older kids who came back from Vietnam taught the younger surfers how to fight. Tim here. We had a dojo at the end of Gray Fox, which now is uh, Kenny G's home. When we'd go there and we'd uh, all took karate there, somebody usually got hurt. These guys were gnarly, blood sport all the way. We all just watched, we learned. And we were like the little soldiers. We were like, we were being groomed to protect Point Doom and our chunk of Malibu. The three most notorious Point Doom bombers were Rod Davis, Bill Burkles, and Dusty Peak. Remember that last name, Peak. You'll hear it again in the next episodes. I heard some truly next-level stories about these guys. But in this podcast, I'm only going to share stories that were repeated many times by different people or were told to me by someone who saw it with their own eyes. Like this one. From Kirby Kotler. Those guys sat at the house above the boathouse at Little Doom, and people would come down from Perry's Cove. And we'd be going, oh, God, here we go. Here's three guys. As the outsiders approach, the bombers would tell them to leave. First year, whistle. And those guys heard it. And then those guys up top are going, go away, go away. And they're like, us? Is that guy talking to us? And they're laughing and like, yeah, whatever, waving them off. But they hit a certain area across the line, you'd hear that squeaky gate open up again. The gate was the way the bombers took, down to the beach. Then they would come down, he'd go down and politely ask him to leave, and then one of them would just throw an F-bomb at him, 
And before you knew it, flying hook kicks to the face, broken jaw, broken nose. I mean, he would lay all three guys out in less than a minute. And if a guy got back up again, oh, my God. Then he would go, put raise his hand, he'd leave, and another guy would come down to finish it off. That's how hardcore it was. It wasn't just on land. This enforcement took place in the water, too. Boards were smashed on rocks, leashes cut, punches thrown. This is the story I heard the most, as told by Sam McGee. As a reminder, he's the carpenter we left in the last episode with Tim Bigelow, fighting the Woolsey fire. There was like a group of people that were just sitting on the beach. They were drinking champagne and, you know, having some food or whatever on the beach. Sam asked me not to share the name of this person, but I can say he was one of the core Point Tomb bombers. So I'm going to say what Sam told me so you don't hear his name. Okay, here we go. So the bomber went over there. and was like, hey, you know, if you guys want to be here, do this, that's fine. But make sure you clean up your trash. And um, had a little bit of attitude. So he's like... You know, okay, whatever, just clean up your shit when you leave, whatever, be respectful. At a certain point... Notices that they're all up and they're walking back towards, like, Paradise Cove, where a lot of people would come to Little Doom from. And he saw that they had left all their trash there. Which was a definite no-no. So, he got on his horse... And went over and picked up the champagne bottle and rode up behind the guy and hit the guy in the head with the champagne bottle. The police were called, and he had to go to court. Basically, the local judge just said, oh, don't do it again. Let him go. You know, basically said, those guys shouldn't have left their trash. And that was it. Morgan Runyon, who we left in the first episode, getting ready to defend his family's restaurant, served with the Point Doom bombers in the 80s. Although he wasn't from the Point, he was accepted in. I was young, and I had pretty decent surfing ability, and I'd keep my mouth shut. (laughs) I asked if he participated in this localism. Yes, I did. I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm not proud about. But it was a thing, and, uh, you know, as a younger surfer, I mean, that's I wasn't going to surf out at these spots unless I was part of the team. Meaning you were either in and you did what the pack did, or you were out and couldn't surf there. Localism is a, you know, some people compare it to like a gang. It wasn't a gang. There was no commerce or anything. But? There's also like this side of respect and looking out for your community. Tim Bigelow here. You know, everybody looked after each other. I mean, that wasn't just in the water, that was in the streets, that was around the point. We were a brotherhood. Wrapped into this culture of surfing and localism, standing your ground, protecting what you believe is yours, no matter what, also includes defending your home from wildfires or your businesses, like Morgan. My dad's experience was always like his mantra was, is like, it's gonna burn guarantee and no one's going to show up to help you so you better be ready 
Both Kirby Kotler and Tim Bigelow's parents had the same mentality. Here's Kirby. We've always been our own. We've always relied on our neighbors and friends. And that's what I try and teach my daughters. Is like, you got to participate. You got to jump in. You got skin in the game here. Your neighbors that you're helping one day are going to be the same neighbors that come back and help you someday. Remember, when they were growing up, not a lot of people lived out there compared to Los Angeles, which, at the time, was booming. Today, Malibu only has around 11,000 residents. So, back then, there were even fewer people. And they were all spread out over an area about the size of Manhattan. Not to mention, just a small fraction of Malibu is on the oceanfront, and the rest is steep canyons. Retired fire captain and L.A. County historian Dave Boucher wrote a book about the early days of the Los Angeles County Fire Department called Ride the Devil Wind. The first fire stations in Malibu were built in the 20s and 30s by the L.A. County Forestry Department, which doesn't exist anymore. There were 11 stations, and those stations were not like the ones we have today. They looked like a cross between a lodge and a one-bedroom house. They were one-man operations where a staff member lived all year round. In those early days, they didn't have fire engines either, just cars, Model Ts at first, and then, later on, pickup trucks. You also had two fire camps with 10 to 20 men each. So, up until 1953, there were fewer than 50 men stationed in Malibu and the surrounding areas. If needed, they could call other districts for help. In 53, Malibu the town got its first fire station with a small staff. That's also when the L.A. County Forestry Department merged with the L.A. County Fire Department. Over time, they added more firefighters and replaced the forestry rigs with real-deal fire engines. They also updated the buildings to the ones we have today. So, when Kirby was young in the 60s, they had some fire support, but nothing compared to the man and engine power available today. So, residents back then understood that resources would not be able to protect all or even most homes during wildfires. They accepted this reality. So they fended for themselves and taught their kids to do the same. The first big fire Tim Bigelow remembers is when he was a little kid in the 1960s. He says he was about 12 years old, living in the same house. His parents picked him up from school and began to teach him how to fight fires. I got home and they said, okay, grab a shovel, because all these spot fires and all this stuff, brush, burn, things are still burning. And I was told to go out there and throw dirt on them. Kirby vividly remembers his first fire when he was four, watching it come over the mountains with his parents, who would always stay and defend in Point Doom. And it just came down like a tidal wave. And it really does feel like, if you're a surfer, you know that feeling, it's just slow motion. It just comes over on top of you and you're like, oh my God. In that particular fire, back in the 60s, all the neighborhood kids were brought to one house and left together while their parents fought the fire. It was necessary for survival back in those days. And neighbors often banded together to fight together. Morgan learned the same from his dad, who opened the Old Place restaurant in 1970. 
I don't know if it's accepted, but it's acknowledged that most homes are saved by homeowners or neighbors. Yeah, and that's the beauty is like one person can probably save 20 homes. 20 sounds like a lot, but there is some truth to what he's saying. And we'll get to that in the next episode. But basically, helping your neighbors isn't just altruistic. It's also practical. If your neighbor's home goes, it's likely your home might go. So it behooves you to widen your circle of defense as far as you can. Staying during a wildfire is, of course, controversial. The L.A. County Fire Department's official stance is that when mandatory evacuations are put in place, they're for everyone. And they mean everyone. Out. Now. Unless they have credentials. But the old Point Doom bombers are not advocating that everyone stay. Just like not everyone was an enforcer back in the day. There's certain qualities that one needs in order to stay and fight a fire successfully. Kirby here. That surf culture, when called to arms, shows up. For him, it isn't just a Point Doom thing. You know, that same thing about like the Point Doom bombers and the colony didn't have a name, but they had their group of people and they fought fires. And same thing with the guys at Ramirez Canyon. Malibu Park is a huge place. They're fighting fires is in the DNA. DNA or just how people are taught growing up here. Take Morgan's mindset, for example. I need to be responsible for my own safety, just like surfing. No one is coming to rescue you. You have to know whether it's too big to paddle out, you know, your ability. Part of knowing your ability and your limits is having experience. And for surfers, that experience is rooted in understanding the natural world. Situational awareness is huge. Any surfer worth their salt is an amateur expert at meteorology, oceanography, and bathymetry, which is like the topography of the ocean floor. For example, talking with them about the weather often sounds like this. You know, every half hour, there's a little southern hemisphere swell coming in, mixed in with a little west. It's you know more consistent. And then there's a little wind swell. You know, you can read the direction of the swell and the waves, and it's actually... I grew up in the Midwest, and where I'm from, people talking about the weather sounds more like, it's sunny out, or it's freezing. Surfers have always got one eye on the incoming waves, and the other on the wind. Their feet sensing the currents and creatures moving below them, while they're doing a math calculation on tide levels in their brain. And this type of awareness is key during fires, Just like surfers reading the ocean, knowing the terrain and how to read it during a fire is also clutch. Kirby again. I know every back road, every nook, every cranny of Malibu. I can escape from a situation they could never escape from. Not because they don't have the experience, they just don't have the knowledge. I got 60 years here. And riding horses, you learn all the trails. This is a major advantage when situations get hairy. You always have to have an escape route. You're a fool if you don't. It's like surfing. You know, you you always wanted to have the buddy system. Always have at least one guy out there with you. If something happens, you hit in the head, he pulls you up. Great, you didn't die. That's not the only advantage locals have. Local knowledge is huge. You're not guessing where something is or I wonder what's over there. You know there's houses over there that you can't see or 
there's an old lady that lives over there, or whatever it is. Preparation and having a plan are crucial. There's a lot that can be done for structures, but there's also a lot people can do for themselves. Consider Morgan's approach. When he arrived early in the morning on November 9th to defend the family restaurant from the Woolsey fire, he came with a truck filled with supplies. A chainsaw, pumps, hoses, gas for his generator, gas in metal containers, not plastic ones. And he was dressed for the occasion. My headlamp on, my boots, my newest pair of jeans, wool socks, a long sleeve shirt, and a jacket. Others he saw in the neighborhood were not so prepared. You know, they're in their slippers or their jogging shorts, and they're like, what should I do? I'm like laying out hoses, and I'm like, well, the first thing you need to do is you need to get your car off my hoses, and then you got to head to the beach. you got to get out of here. Having the right mentality is critical, keeping calm and making logical, strategic decisions. And then following through. The one thing in surfing is if you go for it, you probably make it. But if you have hesitation and you try to pull back on a wave, you're, you're entering it, you're going to eat it. You're going down. Commit to your plan. Don't panic when the situation gets heavy. Still very dangerous. People lose their, lose their lives all the time. But being through the fire, I'll tell you, this is what happens to me. My senses go up. I just get into this calm. Kirby takes it one step further. I'm not going to lie. It's terrifying. But it's also really exciting. I don't want to say it's fun. But if you surf huge waves, you could call that terrifying. You're going to die. And you could easily die. But you don't because you take all your training and all your experience and your physical fitness and years of experience surfing and you apply it into one and you become somebody who does that for a living and you have fun and you enjoy it, you laugh as you're getting ready to die. Wow, that bravado is intense. Also, Malibu has changed a lot since Kirby, Tim, Drew, and Morgan grew up. People with money started to move in in the 80s and 90s. And along with the newcomers, a lot of the surf localism died out. Skyrocketing real estate prices began forcing some of the old school residents out. And with them went the area's ranch blue-collar past. Kirby isn't too stoked about some of the newcomers. They're like, where, I don't know, like, where's, where's a really nice Gucci store? It's like, okay, well, Gucci ain't here. Uh, there's a fire coming. Jump in the game. These people are worthless. I hate to say it. I don't mean to, I apologize if everyone's listening to this that takes offense. I don't mean it that way. It's just you have to be accountable. If you're going to have a house and you're going to be in Malibu, you need to know there are some inherent risks and you need to be prepared for it. Accountability is a word that was repeated over and over to me. Malibu is a fire landscape. If you want to live here, you have to learn to live with fire. As the area grew, old and new residents continued to resist change, like new roads, power plants, and they even tried to stop a sewer system that L.A. County wanted to build. Why? 
because it would have allowed the area to support more development, which equals more people. And locals did not want more people. One of the big reasons residents incorporated the city in 1991 was to try and fight mandates coming from the county to develop. This anti-development attitude is even written into the city code. Malibu's mission and vision is a community where residents, quote, have historically evidenced a commitment to sacrifice urban and suburban conveniences in order to protect that environment and lifestyle and to preserve unaltered natural resources and rural characteristics, end quote. This ethos is very much alive and well in Malibu today. Tim Bigelow. We've had people move going, well, it's dark out here. We should, uh, you should have lights. And we said, well, if you want lights, you should go back to where you came from. Because we like it out here. We like the dark skies. We like to walk to the beach and see the lights of Santa Monica. Again, shades of May Ringe here. Remember, because of her, unlike almost all of Southern California, there's no marina, mega hotels, no boardwalk, or huge urban developments here. On what's arguably one of the most beautiful pieces of coastline on this side of the continent. And locals liked it that way. But now, the new Malibu is well on its way to crowding out the old. The problem is so many of them come out here and they want to change it. To what? From an uninhabited, rugged, old west time capsule to houses that can go for up to $56 million. Point Doom has made quite the transformation in the last 60 years or so. Mega mansions, high fences, and now some residents in other parts of Malibu have started paying private firefighting services to defend their homes. The need for the community to come together and people's motivation to do so seemed to some to be on its death march. On top of that, for Point Doom in particular, fire hadn't reached the point in over 80 years. It seemed that maybe the next generation on the point was going to let their traditions fade. But then came the Woolsey fire. Kirby Kotler here. Woolsey came through and just throttled Point Doom. Just throttled it. Sam McGee and his friends did what some thought had been lost. I've never seen this much participation. And these guys are young bucks. I'm stoked that they were on board. I couldn't even tell you how stoked I was. They stepped up. That's, that's Malibu right there. That's the rebirth of Malibu. Every generation has learned from the one before. But each era is different. Times change. And so the response to wildfires has also changed. Morgan sums up the difference between his generation and his dad's. My dad wanted to be a cowboy, but I wanted to be a surfer. Still, his defense of the restaurant struck some as similar to how his father defended it. And someone asked, once they said, like, well, you know, like, you're wearing your dad's boots. And I was like, absolutely not. I got my own boots to wear. During the Woolsey fire, the next generation of Point Doom bombers would learn how to wear their own boots, too. Together, 
They showed up for their community in ways even the older generation didn't see coming. They made it up as they went. But in the aftermath of the fire, it's coalesced into something that could be a game changer in the fight against wildfires. It's an idea that lets communities take matters into their own hands. What is it? That, on the next episode of Sandcastles. This episode was reported, produced, and hosted by me, Adriana Cargill. Editing by Sasha Woodruff. Story editing by Adam Whitney Nichols. Mixing and mastering by Kathleen Yor. Music by Marcelo Dale Vieira. Theme song by Medium Zach. Fact-checking by Audrey Regan. Graphic design by Tomas Villasenor. This is a Wavemaker Media production. One more thing before you go. As you heard, this show is produced and distributed by a really small team. Everyone has full-time jobs working on this on nights and weekends over the course of years. If you enjoyed this series and would like to support indie storytelling, the biggest thing you can do is go to Apple Podcasts and rate it five stars. Just hit the five-star button on the show's main page at the top. And if you have time, leave a review. I know every podcast asks for this, but it's especially important for independent podcasts like this one. We really appreciate it. We don't have a corporate media machine behind us or a marketing department to spend 24-7 for months getting the word out. Instead, we ask you to tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening, and see you on the next episode of Sandcastles. Castles.